0: Republicans have a clear strategy, the culture war. We have to fight against the other. What can Democrats do to actually win? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. He's
1: not breathing. Can you get a
2: pulse?
0: Barely.
3: There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy.
1: People don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man.
0: It seems pretty clear that when Republicans gain political power, they exercise it to the fullest. On the other hand, Democrats, after they gain office, too often show timidity. Timidity. Our guest today, Luke Savage, writing for Jacobin Magazine, argues in his article that Democrats in Michigan are showing national Democrats how to actually wield power. Hmm, what a concept. Democrats have had a rough time connecting with voters in the Midwest, but somehow they're showing some chutzpah in this solidly Midwestern working people-dominated state. And now they control the governor's office and the legislature. They even have so much power a bunch of far-right terrorists actually tried to kidnap and perhaps kill his Democratic governor, Gretchen Whitmer, who eh, they talk about running for president. Our guest points out that for several decades now, a basic political dynamic has recurred in Washington. Afforded political power, Republicans push their agenda as fiercely and aggressively as possible, using every tool at their disposal. Well, perhaps something can be learned from Michigan and replicated in other states, even in our nation's capital in Washington. Could it be? Our guest on this part of Keeping Democracy Alive is Luke Savage, who's a staff writer at Jacobin Magazine and author of The Dead Center. Reflections on Liberalism and Democracy After the End of History. Ooh, sounds interesting. Luke, you point out that when Obama took power in 2009, he had a sweeping mandate and a governing trifecta. Yet, though he was immensely popular, the unique opportunity for real health care reform was missed. Invited to the table for crafting health care insurance reform was the for-profit health insurance industry. What other really important opportunities do you think the Democrats also missed at that unique moment? And why did they miss it?
2: Well, thank you. First of all, thank you so much for having me. Um, I think this this moment, this period of Democratic control in 2009 and 2010 really needs to be discussed and, and understood, because I think that, Uh, What happened during that period and and also what didn't happen is deeply implicated in the making of American politics today Um, and in so much of the, uh, so many of the frustrations uh, ordinary people have with it. Uh, You know, broadly speaking, you had this hugely popular and charismatic Democratic president who was swept into office with this historic mandate. Uh, It was the worst financial crisis since the Great Depression. It was in the wake of the most catastrophic and destructive foreign policy engagement since Vietnam, which, of course, turns 20 this week. I'm talking about Iraq. Mm -hmm. Um, And, uh, you know, this was a time as well where there was a very widespread and very well-founded popular rage towards Wall Street and, I think, towards the political settlement in general. So people wanted change, and I think with Obama – Particularly because this is how he presented himself. Um, you know, they thought they were going to get it, and when the Democrats won this, uh, you know, moment of uh, hegemony in government—60 votes in the in the Senate, you know, filibuster-proof majority, uh, control of the House, and also, of course, the White House. Um, you know, there was this, there was this, uh, this big moment. Um, now, as you alluded to already. You know, a political transformation uh, is not what happened. You know, you mentioned healthcare, which is certainly a major failure and missed opportunity. But you, you also mentioned something of the cause there, which I think is important too. Um, and that's that the uh, for profit insurance industry came to dominate the debate and the administration ultimately right. deferred to it. Right. And I think that's true in so many other areas as well. Um, you know, this is a moment in which it would have been very correct and very popular to challenge entrenched private interests, uh, not just in the health uh, insurance industry and in you know, finance capital, I think, as well. And the Democratic Party, by and large, uh, did not do that. Mm. They abandoned the public option for health care. Yes. Um, they didn't go to the mats for it. They ultimately passed something whose basic contours, which is the, in the Affordable Care Act, uh, you know, the basic contours of that were designed by a conservative full tank in the 1990s. Um, the Democrats decided not to push promised legislation on a uh, card check that would have made it easier for workers to unionize. Uh, they refrained from uh, passing a significant overhaul of the financial system. They refrained from meaningfully confronting the executives and many of the regulatory structures that had allowed the financial crisis to develop in the first place. And they opted for a uh, an economic response, uh, which I, I think – Uh, you know, few people would dispute this at this point, really put Wall Street ahead of uh, ordinary people. And the result of that was that, you know, millions of people lost their homes, the savings and assets and incomes of working and middle class people all over America were liquidated. Um, But also the political settlement was broadly kept in place with just a few changes. And there was no kind of fundamental shifts, um, you know, in the direction of something like uh, what we saw with the New Deal in the 1930s, right. uh, for example. Um, and I guess just to, just to finish my answer here, sure. you know, uh, because I think this partly tees up, you know, uh, everything else we're going to be talking about today, because in 2010, right, you had one of the biggest, uh, you know, biggest midterm victories like the Republican Party has ever won, at least in modern times. and. Yeah. A big part of that was that, you know, Republicans successfully captured this populist energy you know, the Tea Party sort of ended up gobbling up, you know, cynically, but effectively gobbling up a lot of this genuine anger towards the financial system. And the result was you had Republicans sweeping to power um, only two years after Obama's historic election. And you also had Republicans taking uh, control in all of these states like Wisconsin and and Michigan. And, of course, uh, you know, many Americans are still living in the shadow of those uh, events.
0: And, you know, populism has a long history. It doesn't have to be captured by the right, but it was. Democrats just blew it. The energy was there. And, and, you know, I've heard it said, if people if people know what the Republicans stand for but don't know what the Democrats stand for, if they hoist something up the flagpole and we don't, well, guess who wins? And in Michigan, when, when Republican Rick Scott was governor, he also enjoyed what you call a trifector, the House, the Senate, and the gubernatorial office, total political power of the state's institutions. He showed some determination for his anti-worker agenda in in what had been a historically worker powerful state, do tell. And how did that affect workers and union membership?
2: Right. So I mean, you know, this is such a significant part of the story of twenty ten is that you have Republicans coming to power, um, you know, opting with trifectas in you know uh, places like Michigan, Wisconsin with Scott Walker, um, and you know these are you know historically uh, places that have been bastions of the Democratic Party, certainly in an electoral sense, but more importantly, or, you know, also anyway, additionally, uh, bastions of the American labor movement and of, you know, populist uh, radicalism. You know, Wisconsin is a place where some of the earliest experiments in progressive social policy were were tried in the the early 20th century, Mm -hmm. for example. And, of course, Michigan has this very, uh, you know, proud uh, trade union tradition largely because of the auto industry yep. and, um, you know, and, and, and the UAW. And so, uh, you know, Rick Snyder, uh, when he, uh, when he took office, I mean, as I understand it, he'd actually, uh, he'd actually sort of waffled on, on, uh, right to work legislation. This was not part of what was promised, uh, as I understand it, but, um, you know, uh, in 2012, uh, he decided he was going to push it. And as one uh, Democratic state senator by the name of uh, Darren Camilleri uh, described it, there was no hearing. There were no public availabilities. Mm. They passed the entire thing in a day. The governor signed it behind closed doors. You know, uh, I, I could not find any polling to the effect that a majority of people in Michigan actually supported this. But this is how Republicans wield power. You know, they know uh, what interests they're there right. to serve. And they often serve them ruthlessly. Um, you asked about the implications of this and they were very significant I mean based on the data that I was able to find um, in the last you know roughly 10 years since that legislation the right to work legislation was signed um, you know Michigan union membership has dropped by something like 40,000 um, mm-hmm. it's dropped by a few percentage points you know I think it was uh, it, you know 30 percent in 1989 and I think by 2012 it was at Nearly nineteen percent, and I think as of last year it was about fifteen percent. Um, and you've seen with that wages have stagnated. You know, I mean they've risen, but well below the rate of inflation, which means that they've you know they're not they're not actually uh, growing. Um, and I would just say something else here about sure. these kinds of bills in Michigan and more generally. You know, we, you know uh, you can measure the, the impact of, uh, and you know you, you, you rightly would measure the impact of something like this on. Uh, by, by looking at these, um, you know, these obvious metrics, wages and, and union membership, union density, that kind of thing. But there are all kinds of other corollaries when fewer workers uh, become part of unions or more positively, when more workers belong to them. Uh, so there's research that came out last year from the Economic Policy Institute mm-hmm. uh, that shows that higher unionization is correlated with all kinds of um, you know, positive indicators across a range of uh, a range of things. Um, uh, and you know one of the one of the major things that high union density often correlates to is greater democratic participation um, so you know and it, it, these attacks on unions are attacks on workers certainly but I think more broadly they're attacks on democracy and that was a big part of what the Republican project in, in 2010 was all about. It.
0: Yeah, they, they, they really don't like democracy. They'd like an autocracy. They're very, very clear on that. They want big business to, to run everything. And this has been going on a long, long time. Uh, there's nothing new about it. But I I wonder if this move, you know, this so-called right to work, which is exceedingly anti-union, of course, was if there's something like ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Committee, when I was a uh, legislator in New Hampshire, there was this right wing group of of big business people who were pushing everything they had they wrote cookie cutter anti worker laws for all 50 states and i can't help but think that they were behind this so called right to work uh, legislation in michigan which hurts people and you know any economist knows that it's not trickle down. That doesn't work. It's not, I mean, supply side doesn't work. It's demand side that works. When more people have more money in their pocket to buy more pizza, more beer, more stuff, the economy does better. Well, in 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 the recent midterms, in 2022 in Michigan, the Democrats took over. What happened when they did? What were some of the laws that the Democrats passed?
2: Well, uh, something they did, uh, well, just last week, it passed through the Michigan State Senate, um, and I think the week before, through the House, and um, I haven't actually checked, but uh, I know Governor Whitmer has said that she plans to sign it. She supports legislation. Um, this is the repeal of the Snyder-era right-to-work legislation. Uh-huh. So, you know, I have to say, as somebody who uh, has spent years writing about, you know, mostly the National Democratic Party, when I write about Democrats, sure. um, you know, i I'm a, I'm a, you know, I'm a, I'm a pretty cynical and, and skeptically minded lefty, but I found I found this, uh, I have to say, just quite a breath of fresh air. I mean, the Democratic Party winning winning power and then um, using it to help workers. Uh, you know, if you look at the way Democrats, uh, Democratic lawmakers in the state, have actually made the case for this and against right to work, you know, uh, many of them are not equivocating. They're making a very impassioned defense of, of workers' rights, which is. You know, again, a refreshing change from the sort of, uh, you know, incessant calls for bipartisanship and things like that that we're so used to at the national level. Um, So there's this right to work repeal. Um, There's, uh, I mean, just in a single day, uh, the New York Times had a piece on this last week. Um, You know, while Republicans protested, uh, they passed a new gun control law. Mm -hmm. Uh, They voted to repeal. Uh, there was an abortion ban on the on the books in Michigan, um, it, as I understand it. It was effectively unenforceable, but they're removing it anyway. Right. Um, and they passed uh, new protections for LGBTQ citizens, which, of course, is significant given um, the, what you know what is now sort of the uh, well one of the wider pushes that Republicans are pursuing uh, yes. all over the country, particularly at the state level. These bills targeting uh, transgender people, in particular. Um, so those are those are just a few of the things that they've done and uh, I guess just quickly to go back to where we began which was 2009 I mean I think you obviously it's a different context it's you know a state state level and a lot of time has passed etc but still you can compare this to uh, you know I think back to the Obama administration when you know most of the Bush tax cuts were made permanent you know they didn't yes. they didn't uh, they didn't reverse those so that's just one example among many and so here you have instead a clear-cut example of the Democratic Party, uh, in a state, wins a trifecta and moves right away to to pass a bunch of uh, legislation like this. Um, and uh, you know I think that's worth uh, I think that's worth acknowledging and celebrating
0: People power, you know, it really counts. and and, you know, in terms of campaign money, the Republicans look to the big, big money people for money. But as Bernie showed, it's a I mean, the reason for that money is to win the support of people. And you're talking about Democrats winning power and actually using it. What a concept. People want these things, but the Democrats so often are, you know, so timid. It just, it kills me, I must say. Now, Michigan has been a swing state in terms of presidential elections. A majority live in urban or suburban areas, but over 90% of the land mass in the upper and lower peninsula state is rural. 90% rural areas, places which are less densely populated, tend to be Republican but governor whitmer a good democrat recently said rural michigan is a fundamental part of michigan's economy and that's interesting whitmer said in a statement she, by creating a new office of rural development she said we are recognizing the unique challenges and opportunities in our rural communities and implementing policies making investments to build a more prosperous rural economy and So far, young people are moving away. Economist Lou Glazer said, if you can't keep your young people, you can't have a functioning economy. And he notes that rural communities across the nation are confronting the same problem. The, you know, agriculture is one thing. The food industry is important to rural communities. And yeah, it offers room to grow. But about 31% uh, of households there do not have an affordable, reliable high-speed internet connection. Now, there's an opportunity if there ever was one. Michigan, along with Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, currently has the longest active bellwether streak in terms of presidential elections. So, my question is, is there any chance the Democrats' focus, Whitmer's focus, on and the House and the Senate, on such widespread development of the urban areas may impact the 2024 elections? They're actually doing something to reach people who normally feel like, oh, the Democratic Party is all about big city people and big money people your thoughts
2: sure i mean I, I don't feel informed enough about uh, the Michigan context specifically to to offer an intelligent answer on on the, the particulars that you mentioned, but right. you know in in, in broad strokes, uh, you know I certainly agree with the spirit of your question i mean uh, I guess sort of to to reiterate uh, you know something that uh, I said earlier, I mean I think that um, You know, the way for a political party, um, or at least alluded to this earlier, the way for a political party uh, like the Democrats to win elections is, I think, plain and simple, making real interventions and real changes that directly and tangibly impact people's lives. I mean, I think politics today is is very frequently kind of a spectacle mm. and understandably I think a lot of people don't believe it has much to do with them. Right. I think you can add to that that there's been a view uh, i think in the sort of national democratic brain trust that good policy you know is, is actually something that you people can't actually see or, or perceive you know I think back to the obama era stimulus which was by design uh, sort of too clever by half it mm. was, it was designed such that it would be sort of invisible and imperceptible to to many people. So there were all kinds of things that were sort of designed to be, uh, you know, incremental and and you know not really felt by anybody. Um, and you know, the wonks who were behind it thought that made it uh, thought they made it absolutely brilliant. But um, as you know, we can we can debate the economic merits of it. I don't happen to think they hold up very well either. But right. I think um, you know, in in relation to your question, I mean. The fact that the measures, um, you know, weren't really perceptible to a lot of people is very significant just politically and electorally. You know, when when people uh, actually feel when, when I mean, again, it, it's, it's sort of almost embarrassing to say it out loud because it sounds like it should be a truism. But when a politician runs for office and says, I'm going to have your back and if you elect me, you're going to get X, Y and Z, and they're going to have such and such an impact on your life. I think that very rarely happens these days. And so when it does, I think the, uh, you know, the implications of that um, politically and electorally uh, can be can be can be quite profound. So uh, so I that's 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 I think what I would say there uh, without uh, offering anything uh, too, too particular on some of those other details you mentioned. So I just don't know, know enough there
0: just actually, actually delivering. And uh, if you just tuned in, Burt Cohen here, the show is keeping democracy alive. Our guest today is Jacobin writer Luke Savage, who's written an article titled Democrats in Michigan are showing national Democrats how to actually wield power, how to get things done. And, you know, it's also true that, that Bill Clinton, theoretically a Democrat, enacted many of Reagan's Uh, Agenda about welfare reform and things like that, but Democrats and and the lack of perceptibility uh, from Obama, whereas, and you talked about a circus kind of atmosphere, people, you know, they want to see something, and Donald Trump was somebody you could see. He was a a TV star, an entertainer, uh, and sort of what the Spanish call a caudillo, somebody coming in on a big white horse, you know, a hero to save the day. Whereas the Democrats, pff, what do they produce? What, what's perceptible? Not a lot. Obama promised a lot of things, a lot of hope. Mm, yeah, how about that hopey thing? Trumpism certainly and wisely took advantage of the Midwestern tradition of populism. Anger that they're being ignored. Anger that they're being ignored. That's, that's what Trumpism plays with. Some have argued that Bernie Sanders' populism continues in the tradition of what used to be called prairie populism. Notably was the case in uh, Wisconsin. Anger at the big banks and the financial interests that keep working people without power over their own lives. The government that gives big bailouts to the big banks and pff, the regular people, what do they get? It's It's been said, you know, you talk about Michigan possibly uh, uh, leading the way and showing national Democrats how to actually wield power. It's been said, no doubt you've heard it as well, Luke, that people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, a real liberal, can only win in a place like New York City. In your reading of political reality in Michigan and the Midwest and other places, how much of that state's democratic, dare I say liberal, wielding a political power works and is replicable elsewhere? Or does it have to be only in places like New York City? What about demonstrating political courage has wider appeal than has usually been tried by Democrats? What about that demonstrating political courage?
2: Well, I think uh, both of these are important questions. I mean, I suppose just quickly to the second one, um, you know, I think that the language of sort of bipartisanship and, mm. and elite brokerage that's sort of often the tenor of, of things in Washington, whichever party is, is in power, you know, I think that that sort of uh, that sort of way of framing politics is very attractive to a very narrow subset of you know, operatives and, and lobbyists and, um, you know, political elites. But I, I really don't think it resonates much with, you know, with most people anyway, and particularly people who, um, you know, are, are struggling uh, in a material sense, uh, you know, uh, that, that sort of language just doesn't appeal to at all. I mean, I said this, I suppose, uh, in answering your previous question, but, you know, most people want to know who's going to have my back. And, you know, what oh, yeah. what what are they, they going to do for me? And, and, and also, who are they going to confront, you know, um, because something that the language of bipartisanship precludes by definition is the idea that there's any, uh, you know, there are any wider interests in society who, which may be implicated in, uh, you know, the reason your paycheck is getting smaller or the reason why right. you don't have health insurance or whatever. Right. Um, and so, you know, there is an immediate intuitive appeal to um, to, to demonstrating political courage, to mm-hmm. confronting, uh, you know, these powerful private interests, big employers, corporations, uh, Wall Street, uh, w- you know, whatever it is, um, and you know, it also has the you know, uh, implicating those sorts of uh, interests in, uh, you know, people suffering. Also has the uh, the, the, the benefits of being true. <laughs> so I think that we can't over overlook yeah. that just the the, the utility of. of uh, uh, you know, of, of uh, speaking authentically uh, and honestly about uh, the problems people are facing. Um, I suppose, so your, your other question was about, you know, to what extent is this, uh, you know, is this model of, um, you know, more, more confrontational, uh, ambitious mm-hmm. kind of left-wing Democratic Party politics represented by something like AOC, um, to what, to what extent is that replicable elsewhere? Mm-hmm. And I mean, I, I think that, uh, you know, if you look at where, um You know, the the still relatively small, um, you know, number of uh, swing lawmakers in Congress where they hail from. I mean, it really isn't just New York City. Of course, you have AOC Mm -hmm. and Jamal Bowman, but you also have Rashida Tlaib, Mm -hmm. who's in Michigan. Mm -hmm. Uh, You have Ilhan Omar, who hails from Minnesota. Um, You know, you have Cori Bush uh, as well, who who hails from uh, Missouri. So there's, you know... uh, it's not that uh, this is sort of a crude formula that you can just sort of uh, you know you can't you can't do this in the same way that Alec writes bills right you can't have a prefigured political strategy and message box and and policy program uh, exactly that you just kind of neatly transpose onto different political realities mm-hmm. but I think in the broad contours uh, you know you can do a you can do a tremendous amount um, uh, by simply uh, doing all the things we've said by promising to do big things that will have a tangible impact on people's lives uh, and then doing it. Hmm.
0: Uh, People like courage. People like follow-through. And if it makes a difference on people's lives, if it's imperceptible, (laughs) it ain't going to work. That's for sure. Well, this has been very fascinating. Luke Savage, if people want to read more of your stuff, Jacobin Magazine, what's the uh, link on the uh, Internet?
2: Oh, it would be jacobin.com.
0: Good stuff there, I must say, jacobin.com. And, of course, jacobin has uh, quite a history <laughs> in in European politics, that's for sure. <laughs> Thanks so much for, sh- for being with us today. And uh, after I talk with you, I'm going to play some uh, uh, sweet Michigan rock and roll. Thank you so much.
2: Thanks so much, Brad. A pleasure.
0: Oh, I'm so ready. I'm so ready. 50 states. We move from Michigan to Arkansas and a whole bunch of other states doing something that Arkansas is doing as well. Arkansas is a key part of the old South, yet its culture and values remain very much alive in the Republican Party of the 21st century. One unmistakable visible example is the character of the character of that state is his new governor, Sarah Huckabee Sanders. You may have noticed the unique outfits worn by this governor, kind of foofy, square-dancing dresses with cowboy boots. Of course, one continuing aspect for which the Old South is known is its centuries-long embrace of open racism. Though Jim Crow laws are no longer evident and the hoods of the Ku Klux Klan are put away in their closets, official state-sanctioned defense of racism and racist policies is fully acceptable there and abroad, has made itself apparent in Arkansas's anti-boycott law. As our guest on this portion of Keeping Democracy Alive, Marjorie Cohn writes in a new essay on Truth Out, in which she reminds us that politically motivated consumer boycotts have played a central role throughout U.S. history. And Arkansas is trying to ban boycott, sanction, and divest. She writes, while the far-right Israeli regime escalates its repression of Palestinians, the U.S. Supreme Court has refused to disturb an Arkansas law that requires government contractors to certify that they are not boycotting Israel or Israeli-controlled territories. And aside from concerns about an extraordinarily politically- powerful lobby restricting the traditional American freedom of economic speech, such as boycotts. Perhaps most disturbing about this is that it's not limited to Arkansas. Here in New Hampshire, which has been described as the Alabama of the North, that Arkansas law is being replicated. Anti-boycott, divest, and sanction laws have been introduced in more than 40 states, and in this state House Bill 339 is titled prohibiting the investment prohibiting the investment of state funds in any company participating in a boycott of Israel. Mm-hmm. You may remember that a similar boycott divest and sanctions campaign against apartheid South Africa worked in the 1990s. And if it weren't also finding success in taking on apartheid Israeli policies against Palestinian rights, the effort in Arkansas and elsewhere would not be happening. But it is effective. Our returning guest, Marjorie Cohn, is Professor Emerita at Thomas Jefferson School of Law, former president of the National Lawyers Guild, and a member of the National Advisory Boards of Assange Defense and Veterans for Peace and the Bureau of the International Association of Democratic Lawyers. Her books include Drones and Targeted Killings, Legal, Moral, and Political Issues. She's co-host of Law and Disorder Radio. Well, thanks so much for being with us, Marjorie. Please tell us about the Arkansas law. What, what is its goal? What interests initiated it? And what has the high court done about it, perhaps most importantly?
3: Well, in 2017, Arkansas enacted Act 710, and it says that a public entity shall not, quote, Enter into a contract with a company unless it includes a written certification that it is not currently engaged in and agrees for the duration of the contract not to engage in a boycott of Israel. Unquote. Mm. And contractors who have contracts in excess of one thousand dollars must pay a twenty percent penalty if they refuse to sign the certification. Um, This like many of these laws around the country, was sponsored by um, people who blindly support the Zionist government of Israel, which is now, of course, under fire by half a million Israelis for its anti-democratic policies. But uh, long story short, the U.S. Supreme Court left the the act, the Arkansas law, in effect, Um, even though they had the opportunity to review it they did not, and so it's still uh, it's still in effect.
0: And yet, it seems so clearly anti-rights. I mean, we've we've long treasured our rights to, uh, you know, put our money where our mouth is, you know, and not just protest. And and wow, it's it's a little bit surprising. But we'll talk about that as we go along. Well, what? Not everybody is familiar with the BDS boycott, divest, and sanction movement. What is its goal? Is it, as its detractors insist, anti Semitic in nature?
3: Well, the BDS movement, Boycott, Divestment, Sanctions, was launched in 2005 when 170 Palestinian civil society organizations called for boycott, divestment, and sanctions, uh, which were, quote, nonviolent punitive measures, unquote, Mm -hmm. and they would last until Israel fully complies with international law. And in order to do that, Israel must first end its occupation and colonization of all Arab territory and dismantle its barrier wall, which encroaches on Palestinian territory. Um, secondly, Israel must recognize the fundamental rights of Israel's Arab Palestinian citizens to, to full equality. And third, Israel must respect, protect, and promote the rights of Palestinian refugees to return to their land as required by U.N. General Assembly Resolution 194. And just briefly, Bert, boycott means the withdrawal of support for Israel as well as Israeli and international companies, including cultural and academic institutions that violate Palestinian human rights. Divestment means that churches, banks, universities, pension funds and local councils withdraw their investments from Israeli and international companies that are complicit in violating Palestinian rights and sanctions involve the governments um, ending military trade and full free trade agreement and the expulsion of Israel from international fora. And the successes of the BDS mm-hmm. movement have prompted Israel's lobby organizations, including right-wing Christian Zionist groups, to introduce anti-boycott legislation at the local, state, and federal levels, very much like Arkansas's Act 710.
0: And... Yeah, the, it does it does work and I note that uh even in the newspaper today that uh the government the current far right government of Israel said it will continue to occupy uh territory in the uh West Bank even though it's quite illegal. They keep on doing it anyway. They just remain committed to that. So, as it's been charged that they say some people say, "Oh, it's anti-Semitic," and the people who who support the anti-BDS laws, uh, to to not allow people to have that that freedom that we've tre- you know treasured, they say, "Well, this is anti-Semitic, and that's why we can't do it." What what do you say to that?
3: Well, it's a false conflation between criticizing the policies of Israel and uh, and being disparaging against Jews. There are many Jews, such as myself, and, me. Uh, and people in Jewish Voice for Peace, and probably you, I would think,
1: mm-hmm.
3: um, who uh, who criticize Israel but are not anti-Jewish. <laughs> um, I have been accused, and maybe you have as well, of being a self-hated Self-hater. Jew, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: and
3: And, you know, the other thing, Bert, and I know that you've probably run across this as well, um, is the whole issue of PEP, progressive on everything but Palestine. Many people, many of my friends and relatives are Democrats. They've got progressive policies. But when it comes to Israel, that's the sacred cow. Don't Mm. confuse me with the facts. Mm. You cannot criticize Israel. And, again, we're seeing uh, a historic um, outcry from Israelis in Israel because of this radical right-wing government, the most right-wing government Israel has ever had, and that's saying a lot.
0: That's true. It has said a lot. Well, tell us about what happened with the Arkansas Times and what its CEO had to say about conforming with the law. This is interesting.
3: Um, Yes, well, in October of 2018, the University of Arkansas Board of Trustees Told Alan Leverett, who is the CEO of the Arkansas Times, that they would not contract with his newspaper for additional advertising unless he signed a certification stating that the Arkansas Times was not currently boycotting Israel, and would agree for the duration of the contract not to boycott Israel. Now, Leverett was not boycotting Israel, but on principle, on First Amendment grounds, he refused to sign the pledge. And after that, the Board of Trustees refused to enter into several advertising contracts with the Arkansas Times. So the Arkansas Times sued the Board of Trustees in December of 2018 asking for a preliminary injunction, and they argued that the act's certification requirement violated the First Amendment um, because it restricts participation in political boycotts and it targets protected expression on the basis of its subject matter and viewpoint, and it compels speech. Mm. Well, a federal district judge denied Arkansas Times motion for a preliminary injunction and dismissed the lawsuit. But a three-judge panel of the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals reversed the district court's decision and ruled that Act 710 violated the First Amendment. And then in June of 2022, the entire Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals reversed the (laughs) three-judge panel's decision and dismissed the case.
0: So, so it's a bit unclear now. I mean, this, the law sometimes is. But, but it, it does seem that the by dismissing the Arkansas Times lawsuits, the Eighth Circuit violated longstanding Supreme Court precedent. Explain that, please.
3: Um, Yes. Well, the court held that direct participation in a boycott is not protected by the First Amendment, Hmm. even where the state has singled out boycotts on a specific topic and expresses a specific viewpoint for prohibition. Um, The Eighth Circuit said the First Amendment only protects the speech and association that accompanies a boycott, not the boycott itself. But the Eighth Circuit, in so doing, um, violated long-standing Supreme Court precedent.
0: Fascinating. Upsetting. Now, the Supreme Court aspect, you say that their own precedent protects boycotts. But some of the members of this Supreme Court are rather unique they denied cert, you say. What does that mean? And, and what unusual factors led to this? What are the arguments? Tell us about that, please.
3: Well, first of all, the Supreme Court precedent holds that states cannot suppress politically motivated uh, consumer boycotts, and the Supreme Court has ruled consistently that the government cannot restrict expression because of its message, ideas, subject matter, or content. Um, Nevertheless, the Supreme Court denied certiorari, in other words, refused to hear Arkansas Times appeal. And that meant that the Eighth Circuit ruling stands, and that means that uh, this Arkansas law can be enforced. Um, Now, it takes four members of the Supreme Court to grant certiorari, in other words, to agree to hear a case. Uh And as I'm sure your listeners know, there are now six radical right-wingers on the Supreme Court. Um, I don't know what the vote was, but I Presume that the three liberals on the court—Sotomayor, Kagan, and Jackson—voted to hear the case, and could not get a fourth vote to hear the case, and so um, they they let that uh, that case stand. And I think that you know because they're they're right wingers, um, they very likely. agree with the sentiment in this country, and it's not just limited to right-wingers, I'm afraid, a lot of Democrats as well, um, which is uncritical support for Israel. Although, um, this is interesting, since the radical right-wing government of Israel is now trying to rework the powers that be in Israel and uh, dilute the power of the Israeli Supreme Court, and yes. make it so that judges can be appointed uh, by special interest groups and not necessarily independently. Um, I the, There is a recent poll showing that more Democrats support the rights of the Palestinians than ever before, a majority of Americans. So I think that um, although these protests have to do with keeping the Israel a democracy, it's really only a democracy if you're If you're Jewish. Um, But it certainly has called attention to these issues, and uh, even the U.S. government has made some mildly uh, critical remarks. But I don't, you know, the U.S. government still gives Israel $38 billion a year in military assistance with no strings attached. So I don't think that the U.S. uncritical support for Israel is really going to change much, although there will be pressure on it.
0: There will be pressure, and what's going on with the courts in Israel is that uh, you know, Netanyahu, who's in yet again, intends to kind of nullify the court and have the courts, the, the, the system of justice, do his work you know, have it all come down from the top. And that, that does bother a lot of people. And people in America are quite concerned about uh, what's happening with the courts and, and their power and uh, lack of uh, <laughs> blind justice. They've kind of taken the, uh, the blindfold off. Uh, and, and the Supreme Court aspect, they, their unprecedented protects boycotts, as you say. Uh, what is the ACLU? had to say about this case. They they were always really concerned about civil liberties. What are their arguments specifically about the American history of politically motivated consumer boycotts?
3: Well, the ACLU actually represents the Arkansas Times in this case. Uh-huh. And in their petition for certiorari, the ACLU um, wrote that states would be free if, if the Supreme Court let stand this Eighth Circuit decision or upheld it, um, that states would be free to outlaw participation in disfavored boycott campaigns, whether targeted Mm. at companies that support Israel, Saudi Arabia, Planned Parenthood, or the uh, NRA, even though content discrimination is presumptively unconstitutional. And the ACLU cited Supreme Court precedents that protect boycotts seeking to bring about political, social, and economic change, and they also noted in their cert petition um, that politically motivated consumer boycotts have been ubiquitous throughout U.S. history, and the ACLU cited the boycott of merchants who sold goods made by enslaved people in the period between the Revolutionary and Civil Wars, as well as boycotts Mm -hmm. during the Civil Rights Movement, and, as you said, in opposition to South Africa's Apartheid, and the ACLU wrote, "These acts of collective protest are an enduring part of the fabric of American public discourse."
0: Mm. Enduring part of the fabric of American public discourse. I mean, if we can't, as they say, put our money where our mouth is, then you know that takes that takes away our right and our power as as citizens. And if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're speaking with uh, uh, returning guest Marjorie Cohen, Professor Emerita at Thomas Jefferson School of Law, former president of the National Lawyers Guild. We're talking about uh, crackdown on consumer boycotts uh, that have, you know, they've been with us for a long time, but there's this new crackdown on on boycotts, and it's kind of scary. And you point out that Federal courts in Kansas, Texas, Georgia, and Arizona have held that laws penalizing boycotts of Israel violate the First Amendment. So how can the Supreme Court rule with Arkansas's Eighth Circuit ruling, which conflicts with those states' federal court rulings?
3: Well, actually, the Supreme Court did not rule in this case. They just refused to review the case, which leaves the Eighth Circuit decision uh, in place, and lower federal courts, such as in Kansas, Texas, Georgia, and Arizona, are not binding on appeals courts. Mm. The Eighth Circuit is an appeals court. It binds lower federal courts in the jurisdiction of the Eighth Circuit. It's persuasive in other jurisdictions, but all of these courts are still bound by the Supreme Court's precedent. Uh. And as I said, the Supreme Court's precedent has been consistently uh, to protect the right to boycott very, very clearly.
0: And it's a good right. I, I, I kind of like our rights. And uh, R- Representative Rashida T- Tlaib, I hope I pronounced that right, is a Democrat from Michigan. She's a Palestinian American. And she responded to the Supreme Court's refusal to review the Arkansas law, saying, Today's decision is a travesty, but the people will not be silenced. What are the options now for, for people like me? I mean, I'm Jewish. To me, Judaism means standing up against racism, standing up for freedom. freedom. We've had a long history of protesting against racism and racist laws. So what are options now, given the Supreme Court?
3: Um. Well, before I get to that, let me just recommend a book to your listeners. It's called Reclaiming Judaism from Zionism, ah, and like it. it's a collection of 40 testimonials I'm included in that, from rabbis, students, activists, um, you know, former Zionists who have come to realize that Zionism should be decoupled from Judaism and are very critical of the apartheid government and the policies of. Israel. But I also would recommend to people that they visit the BDS site, um, Boycott Divestment Sanctions, because it will explain which products to boycott. And it has had a major economic impact in Israel, uh, so much so that Israeli interests are sponsoring a lot of these, you know, in the, in the United States, a lot of these anti boycott laws. Mm-hmm. Um, Also, I think it's very important for people to make their views known, because one thing Congress members do, Mm -hmm. and I think the White House as well, is to respond to pressure from their constituents, and that means... Um, writing op-eds or even a short letter to the editor, pegging it to a news story or an opinion piece. Keep it under 150 words.
1: Ah, And if your
3: letter doesn't get published, other letters from the same point of view will, because they count them up. And write letters, um, write emails, make phone calls to both your Congress members and the White House, making your views very clear about these anti-boycott laws, and indeed, um, cri- be, if you are critical of Israel, making that clear as well.
0: Yes, we can. And that, and that's, let me get the name of that book again. That sounds like a really good book to uh, spread around.
3: It's called Reclaiming Judaism from Zionism.
0: Mm, very good. And it's
3: by Carolyn Karcher, K-A-R-C-H-E-R. The other thing about that book is it has these great testimonials, but the introduction and the afterword are a really, really interesting history of Zionism that I'm sure a lot of people don't know about, um, and the racism within Israel against against uh, Jews of color, um, Miz- oh, Mizrahi yes. Jews, mm-hmm. um, the Ashkenazi who are who hail from. Uh, Europe, um, are white, and there is a lot of racism by them, and the government, um, against the Mizrahi Jews from Arab countries, um, Iraq, Africa, etc. It's some very interesting history in this book.
0: And it is a very interesting history. It was set up to be a, a national home in Palestine, (laughs) <laughs> we're going to take over. But uh, if people, it, it, it's an interesting fight. It has to go on. And the Supreme Court needs the pressure. They say they're independent. They care about public pressure. They do. And all the money that the Republicans and Democrats raise, it's to win votes. And if they know that there's pressure on one side to protect the right to boycott uh it will matter. It absolutely will matter. Thank you so much for being with us today, Marjorie Cohn. If people want to read more of your stuff, uh, uh, what, what can you suggest? Truthout? Any other places?
3: Yes, I write a weekly column on truthout.org. The uh-huh. column is called Human Rights and Global Wrongs. And then all of my articles, uh, my books are described, video interviews and radio interviews are collected on my website, marjoriecohn.com.
0: Well, sometimes the hardest things are uh, most important to win, and uh, I think we will eventually. Thank you most, so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me, Bert. This is from a recent Israeli flag rally. Of course, it's in Hebrew. Stay with it for a minute or so, then I'll explain what it says in English. And what they're saying is, go from here and die. Death to Arabs. A good Arab is a dead Arab. The second Nakba, the tragedy, is on its way. Just wait. It's near. The second Nakba will send you all to refugee camps. Palestine is dead. There is no Palestine. Your religion is rubbish. May your village burn. This is not my Judaism, and fighting to stop this is not anti-Semitism. If you enjoyed that discussion, don't miss a single show. Subscribe. It's all free. It's on Apple, Spotify, Progressive Radio Network, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and of course the website, keepingdemocracyalive.com. Thanks very much.